Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going to look at the danger of jihadist militants moving south from the Sahel into the Gulf of Guinea. Today, the terrorist groups, emboldened by their apparent success in the region, are seeking new operational grounds, a development that has triggered a southward drift of the menace from the Sahel to coastal West Africa. That was Ghana's president, Nana Kufuado, speaking a few months ago on the danger his country and other coastal countries face. Over the past decade, jihadists have expanded across the Sahel, from northern Mali into central Mali, parts of Niger, and across Burkina Faso. In Burkina, their advance has been especially fast. From some initial attacks in the north just a few years ago, jihadists linked to Al-Qaeda and to the Islamic State have overrun perhaps more than half the country. Burkina is in some ways a gateway from the Sahel to coastal West Africa. It borders four of the Gulf of Guinea countries, Benin, Togo, Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire. There's increasing fear in African and Western capitals that the northern parts of those countries will be the latest parts of Africa to fall to Islamist militants. Benin and Togo have already seen upticks in jihadist attacks and other activity. Militants have seized forest areas along the Burkina-Benin border. So how should we assess the risks? How vulnerable are those Gulf of Guinea countries? To talk about this, I'm very happy to welcome back onto the show Ibrahim Yaya, who is one of Crisis Group's Sahel experts, and Pauline Bax, who's Crisis Group's Africa Deputy Director. Ibrahim, Pauline, welcome back on. Thank you. Thank you. So, Ibrahim, I want to talk to you first about Benin, and then Pauline, talk to you about Togo, Cote d'Ivoire, and Ghana, and then we'll sort of chat a little bit about the policies of the Gulf of Guinea countries. But perhaps even before we go to the coast, could we, Ibrahim, just start with a quick summary of what's happened in Burkina Faso over the last few years? Because Burkina, in some ways, does seem the route in that militants are using most to the coastal countries. Okay, so Burkina Faso um, is really a country that has gone through a quick downfall as it was exposed um, to pressure from jihadist groups. Jihadist violence started uh, to affect Burkina Faso in 2016, four years after the insurgency began in northern Mali. But the uprising occurred in a particularly difficult context in Burkina Faso only a few months after the country underwent uh, a political transition that ended nearly uh, three decades of rule by Blaise Kampaori. Uh, so not only Burkina Faso was uh, going through a political instability at that moment, but the country's defense and security forces were also deeply divided and um, quite ill-prepared to face the insurgency. Now, as jihadist violence increased in the northern region of, of Sahel, the newly elected authorities decided to arm civilians, uh, the so-called Volontaires pour la Défense de la Patrie, um, and mobilize them uh, to fight against the jihadists. Uh, the context of violence had already revived hatred uh, between communities and tensions around uh, access to natural resources. And... Uh, the, the argument of civilians in that context only ignited those tensions given the conflict uh, and ethnic connotations. Uh, and that those uh, lead to uh, the, an ever deadlier uh, intercommunal violence in the country. Um, so now we enter in a vicious circle where jihadist violence and the government response fueled intercommunal violence, which resulted in a growing toll on, on civilians. And then the more people die, the more uh, their relatives joined the armed groups uh, to seek protections. The violence, uh, which was largely confined in rural areas by 2022, 
you know, generated anger and protests in urban centers, including in Ouagadougou, leading to a military coup uh, in January 2022 and yet another coup in September of the same year. Uh, today, uh, Burkina Faso is in a very worrying situation. Um, the government controls uh, less than half of the country's territory, the other half being controlled uh, mainly by uh, jihadist uh, groups. Uh, not only jihadists control rural areas, but they have put main urban centers under siege, uh, de facto controlling populations, um, even if not physically controlling the cities. The humanitarian situation is catastrophic. The death toll is only increasing over 2 million people. That is uh, 10% of the population is displaced and um, thousands of schools uh, are closed. So really, the situation of Burkina Faso is a very worrying situation right now. And maybe, Ibrahim, just quickly before we move to Benin, maybe just, uh, Ibrahim, it's worth clarifying that the jihadist groups that control much of Burkina, they are part of what's known as the Jamiat Nusrat al-Islam wal-Muslimin, or the Janim, which is a coalition of jihadist groups whose leaders, probably based in northern Mali, and formerly linked to al-Qaeda. There's a smaller group operating in Burkina linked to ISIS, but most of them are a part of Janim. Yes, the groups linked to Janim are uh, predominant, um, but there are places where uh, groups that are linked to the Islamic State are also present, particularly uh, in uh, northeastern Burkina Faso. And so let's move then to Benin. And maybe, Ibrahim, we could start with militants' expansion into this big forest that we heard about up top on the Burkina Faso, Niger and Benin borders. It's an area known as Park W. Do you want to tell us a bit about the park first? Yes. Um, so the Park W is uh, an environmentally protected area of nearly um, 10,000 square kilometers that, as you mentioned, um, is located on the three-border area between Benin, Burkina Faso and Niger. It is a reserve that is part of a larger complex. It's a conjunction of parks um, that together make up one of the biggest uh, protected area in West Africa. Um, it is a, a park that is uh, well known for the richness of its ecosystem and biodiversity. It's home of um, a great diversity of wild animals, including some of the endangered species, lion, elephant, cheetahs, um, etc. In 1996, uh, the park was added uh, to UNESCO's World Heritage List in which UNESCO cited uh, the size of the park, um, the ecosystem, the biodiversity, and the importance um, of it as a refuge for the fauna. It has um, attracted millions of tourists over the years, and it is one of the main attractions in the region. How have these groups sort of penetrated and seized territory in the park? For over a decade, um, at Crisis Group, we have studied jihadist groups in the Sahel, how they originated in northern Mali and then spread uh, to the central and southern part of Mali and then to uh, Burkina Faso and then to areas in Niger. And now we are following them in northern part of uh, the countries of the Gulf of Guinea. What we observed in this attempt to spread from the Sahel arid zone toward the West Africa savanna, park and forests have often served as gateways, facilitating their move from this part of the arid zone of the Sahel toward um, the dense forest of the savanna area. We can give multiple examples. Um, the Park W is one of them. The Park Komoe in northern Cote d'Ivoire is one of them. The Park Arli Panjari in southeastern Burkina Faso and in northern Benin are also other cases where jihadists 
established presence. And then from there, they started occupying other territories. So definitely the Park W has become uh, very important for them because it, it sits on three border area um, uh, and then it allows them uh, to expand their presence way beyond um, those uh, three countries. And usually what's happened when militants have expanded is that they kind of go in, they piggyback on local disputes. They back one side, often against the state, or they sort of go in and build relations with communities through a mix of kind of intimidation and providing local dispute resolution and other things. I mean, do you want to say a little bit about how that's happened in the park? Yes, in particular, if you consider that the Park W is a very contentious space from its creation around a century ago uh, during the colonial era up to this day. First of all, uh, there is a grievance among uh, the indigenous population who uh, were expelled from the space when the park was created. And uh, to this day, this forced removal of local villagers is perceived as a deprivation of indigenous people of their farmland, um, their sacred forests, and uh, the, their source of income. So jihadists tapped these particular grievances, promising the local villagers that they will return their forest to them um, if they establish their control over the area. And that attracts some of uh, the local indigenous people to them. Second thing, they uh, have exploited competition around uh, resources uh, on the park's outskirts. Um, and uh, this competition has uh, increased over the last few decades uh, due to drought, uh, migration, and growing population uh, in the area. Um, in fact, when we look uh, at the park today, we did uh, some exercise to collect uh, satellite data imagery um, to look at it. And, and when you see it seen from, from the sky, the park looks like a green island uh, in a sea of degraded vegetation and advancing cropland around. There is one official in Burkina Faso who summarizes the situation really very nicely, saying that the park today resembles a garnished dish surrounded by starving population. In this rush uh, to control the outskirts of the park, nomadic pastoralists have been on the losing side in particular, and those are the communities among which uh, the jihadists have had success in terms of recruitment. So it's also related to the desert creeping south, as we hear so much about pastoralists looking for new places to graze and then rubbing up against other sort of communities that are farming. It's, the, it's that similar dynamic that we've seen in other places. Yes, definitely. There is a lot of evidence of, you know, uh, desertification and in particular the silting up of uh, rivers and the, the drying up of water points that push uh, pastoralist communities uh, to uh, move further south in search of water and pasture uh, and uh, produce more conflict in, in the areas where they uh, end up. And in, in general, those were areas that were surrounding the park because um, pastoralists view the park as a land without owner. So they, they, they feel as if they could establish themselves into those places freely. So the conflict has increased on the park's age. Uh, in particular, in northern Benin, we have seen over the last decade really unprecedented um, amount of violence opposing farmers and herders, um, uh, particularly uh, between people who consider themselves as being of autochthonous farmers and then um, those uh, nomadic herders who had to move from the arid side of zone to establish in those areas that have more water and pasture. Autochthonous is, you mean indigenous, local to the area? 
Yes, local to the areas. And those conflicts have generated a proliferation of weapons. Um, a lot of communities are already armed. Uh, there is also banditry that increased over the last um, a few decades uh, in the area. And some of those bandits also um, joined, were among the first to join jihadist groups. And uh, Ibrahim, tell us a bit about the groups, the militant groups that have gone into Park W. Yes, there are two katibas that are responsible for uh, this incursion in the Park W. Uh, the first one is uh, the Katiba Ansarul Islam, which is uh, based in northern Burkina Faso and which has spread across different places in Burkina, as we mentioned. And the second group is the Katiba Sarma, um, which is based on the Malian side of the Liptako Gurma area, which is uh, the, the territory agent, the three border area of Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso. These two groups arrived in Park W surrounding in early uh, 2018. Um, they followed uh, two distinct routes. The first one led them from the Liptako Gurma area to the south, uh, during which they occupied several forests along the Niger uh, and Burkina Faso border, which both border the Park W. The other route uh, went through southeastern Burkina Faso from the Sahel uh, areas towards the Fadanguruma zone. And uh, here they, they passed through uh, the Kabonga Forest and uh, the Arli Park um, to end up in the Park W. Today there are uh, rumors about the groups that are controlling the Park W have become a katiba uh, of themselves with their own leadership and, you know, responding directly uh, to Jinim uh, leaders, but these are informations that we haven't yet confirmed. And Ibrahim, just to be clear, although these are two, maybe now three separate Katibas, Katibas are units or battalions, although these are different groups, they're still part of the same Jinim coalition, this, this Al-Qaeda-linked group that operates across much of the Sahel that we talked about earlier. Yes, they're all part of the Jinim coalition. So I want to get in a moment to what militants might be hoping to gain from moving south. But before we do that, it's not just in the park that there's been this sort of increased militant presence. There's also been an uptick of violence in the north of Benin. Do you want to just say a word or two about what's happened there as well? Yes. Um, now, so far, really, the presence of jihadist groups in northern Benin is mainly confined in the forest. Uh, the interaction with locals has been quite limited. Uh, most people only see them when they move from the park um, to other places. There are some cases of preaching in villages surrounding the park where they try to warn people from collaborating with um, government forces. Uh, usually they tell people that they are not against them and uh, they are uh, only fighting against uh, government. This is all the classic discourse that jihadists um, start with when they establish themselves in an area. But then recently we saw that they have started really to commit exactions against local populations. They kidnapped one of the uh, leaders, uh, famous local traditional leader, uh, who's uh, the chief of the village of Mamasipul, um, an, an old, well-established village. Uh, they kidnapped other people um, among the notables. But also early this month, they conducted an operation that killed um, around 10 people, 10 civilians. So really their, their presence has been uh, so far quiet, but it is changing now with these exactions um, that they commit against the local populations. So Pauline, can I ask about Togo? which neighbours Benin just to its west. 
and in northern Togo, there's also been an uptick of violence or incidents involving jihadists. Yes, there's been an uptick in Togo recently. Um, Benin has seen more incidents recently, but Togo has seen quite a few as well, uh, notably in 2022. So that was last year. Uh, these were attacks usually on security posts, uh, with jihadists killing uh, people from the army. There was an incident with a drone, actually, where civilians got killed. This was perpetrated by the government. I think there's a general understanding that these incidents on these northern borders for the coastal countries are often, um, uh, you, know, you know, they involve armed groups that are not necessarily the same. So these can be all separate armed groups or small groups of fighters that respond to different commanders who might in the end respond to, you know, JNM Central Command in Mali, uh, but they're not necessarily the same groups because, of course, you're talking about a very long um, stretch of land, uh, you know, thousands of kilometers. And Togo has mostly seen incidents of uh, on army posts and on civilians, just like Benin. So um, not so much setting up of jihadist cells. I think Togo is quite particular because the head of state is from the north. A lot of people in army are from the north. It's not majority Muslim necessarily in the north. And there have been no reports of jihadists coming to mosques to try to recruit people or to try to caution against working with the governments. But of course, Togo is quite a secretive country as well. So there may have been those incidents that we do not know about. One of the things is that um, uh, the jihadist violence expands also using the nomadic herders' corridors. And uh, there are old corridors that go from the Sahel area to northern Benin and then to uh, northern Togo and up to uh, northern Ghana. And there are a lot of suspicions that some of the uh, jihadists uh, who infiltrate into those areas uh, come via those uh, corridors of, of transhumans. And that's one of the reasons why uh, the authorities in uh, Benin and Togo banned cross-border transhumans, banning nomadic pastoralists uh, from coming into their, their countries to seek pasture and water, as, as I mentioned. There is also another phenomenon that is becoming um, really important now, which is the students who go to, you know, Quranic students um, from these areas, particularly from among the Pearl communities, usually go to study Islamic studies in uh, areas in northern Burkina Faso, like Jibo or Dori. Um, or to uh, uh, central Mali, uh, where they find uh, very knowledgeable religious scholars, um, uh, where they, they learn um, a variety of, of sciences uh, related to, to the Quran. So this is an old tradition of students going from these um, areas to study, but recently some of them went to areas that have fallen already under the control of jihadist groups. Some of those students, when they come back home, they started advocating for jihadist ideology and calling even uh, jihadists uh, to come to their villages, um, saying that uh, we need to improve uh, Islamic practices in, the, in our own communities as well. So that is one of the aspects, I think, that has helped um, the spread of these groups. Um, uh, you find that among most of uh, the nomadic pastoralist communities um, that are established throughout this region. So we talked earlier about what happened in Burkina. There was this local group, Ansarul Islam, but with ties across the border to Mali. And so in the coastal countries, we can talk first about Benin and Togo, but I also want to come to Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana and 
Obviously, Pauline, keeping your important point that all these countries are very different in mind, but there's sort of a debate from what I understand in the coastal countries, and it mirrors debates elsewhere, about whether this is a local phenomenon, it's a local problem, or is it something from outside? And obviously in Burkina, it was both. Now, in the north of Benin, of Togo, how much is this playing off local politics, local grievances? So maybe, you know, in the same way as we saw in Burkina, the breakdown of traditional Muslim authority, the relations between local communities and the state in the coastal countries, sort of north-south questions. I mean, how much should we see it as that, as something that's local? Or rather, should we more see it as simply sort of an extension, another front or something that's imported from the war in Burkina? In northern Benin, I think um, you can say that it is um, similar to what we saw in Burkina Faso, in Mali. Uh, there is a mixture of both foreign um, militants who come established, but with the help of uh, local militants. Um, today, the suspected leaders of uh, jihadist groups in, in northern Benin are locals. There's someone who is called Sheikh Albani, who comes from uh, the, uh, the area of Nati Tungu, um, which is uh, toward the border of Togo, um, who not long ago published a video recording um, in which he speaks uh, the two local tongues. And that's really show that uh, there is a local um, anchorage or that there, is, um, there are local militants um, who have joined the groups um, and who are able to, to speak um, to the local communities uh, about that. But at the same time, as I mentioned, uh, there are fighters who came from the Katiba Sarma. Hamza Shankiti, one of the leaders of the, the Katiba Sarma, is um, you know, suspected to distribute weapons and um, to try to organize uh, the groups uh, in, inside Park W. Uh, there are other names that we know of jihad militants from eastern Burkina Faso, like Muslim who comes from the eastern region of Burkina Faso, who have leadership roles uh, that they play in this area. So we have both, I think, cases of, of foreigners that are backed up or, or the locals that are backed up by foreign jihadist groups. Uh, and this is a, a classic story of jihadist expansion in, in this area. Almost everywhere you go, you find those two elements. And maybe just, Pauline, before I come back to you and we move to Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana, Ibrahim, the relationship between pastoralism, particularly the Pearl or, or Fulani, this often nomadic group across much of the Sahel, West Africa, you know, on, on the one hand, it does seem that that is where that jihadists are recruiting within that community. And as you said, you know, sometimes those pastoralist routes are the ones that jihadists seem to use to come south. But on the other hand, there's sort of a danger in emphasizing that too much heightens the risk that the Pearl or, or Fulani are then targeted by the authorities, stigmatized in a way that's counterproductive. Yeah, I think there is... Um good evidence of uh, pastoralists um, being recruited um, among those groups. It is, I think, linked definitely to, to the crisis of pastoralism, but at the same time um, to the stigmatization that they suffer from every time that there is suspicion of, of, of jihadist activities in, in an area. Um, so in northern Benin, there, were, there have been a lot of arrests of young Pearl Fulanis, and that um, fuel angers and, and push some of those communities to join the groups. Um, so I think it is a reality, really. Even though you have to, we have to nuance it. Um, uh, so the, the two leaders that I mentioned uh, in northern Benin are not Pearl. 
Um, I mentioned um, one of them speaking Bariba and the other one speaking Kotokoli, which, which are languages spoken by sedentary communities. But the large amount of, uh, you know, the field soldiers are from the pastoralist um, Fulani communities. And so can we move then to Cote d'Ivoire, Pauline? I mean, it, you know, in some ways, Cote d'Ivoire was one of the earliest coastal countries to suffer militant attacks. Several years ago, had this one big attack on the coast and maybe has been a little bit ahead of the other coastal countries in responding. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Cote d'Ivoire is quite a particular case because it had a crisis for almost 10 years where the country was divided in half. And the north was run by rebels who declared the support for the current president, Alassane Ouattara. Some of those rebels, well, they're, no, they're not in power now, but they uh, say their population in the north is quite supportive of the current president. Um, and Cote d'Ivoire was, became quite aware of the jihadist threat back in uh, 2015, where it tightened several laws. And it has uh, already implemented some of those measures who you can say classify as counterterrorism measures, if you will. There was a big attack in 2016, which was on the coast. And then the second big attack that they had was in 2020, which was in the north. But in the meantime, when President Alassane Ouattara came to power um, back in 2011, uh, he started with quite a massive infrastructure program for the north or for the entire country, but especially for the north, which hadn't seen much development for the last 10 years. So roads, electricity, hospitals, that kind of thing. So the government has been consisting building quite solid infrastructure there, while also, for example, um, sending imams to Morocco for the specific Moroccan version of Islam due to quite close relations to Cote d'Ivoire and Morocco. And there's also regulations on the practice of foreign imams. So it's not that any person from Mali or Burkina Faso can come in and preach in a mosque. And there's quite tight regulations as well as surveillance and intelligence gathering which is spearheaded by the government, but in cooperation with the main Muslim organization in the country. And in Cote d'Ivoire, the jihadism is very much seen as an external threat. In general, the feeling is that the ideology that jihadists preach in Burkina Faso and Mali will find no fertile ground in the north of Cote d'Ivoire. And uh, Pauline, what do you make of that argument? It's not that unusual to hear that type of argument in other places, right? It's, it can't happen here. It's not our tradition. And often that's sort of been true until it isn't, right? Or do you think that because, as you say, North-South relations are a bit different, Ouattara as president, Cote d'Ivoire has already had this scare with these attacks, that it might have some protection? Yes, because there's not so much a sense of uh, disenfranchisement as you could maybe find in other countries. And the state is very much present. And even if foreigners would come to mosques to preach, there is an intelligence gathering and surveillance system that authorities will be quickly alerted. So I'm not saying this will be a surefire way to protect the country, um, but it seems to have been effective so far. As soon as an imam will go towards a more radical discourse, the authorities will be alerted. And we've seen cases of that already. Quite recently, one imam in Abidjan, actually in the main city, was threatened with a prison sentence. I think he came up with a fine. The Muslim organization to his way behind the government saying, you know, this is a good thing. Yeah, so I think we shouldn't be too skeptical in this case, especially through the, what I say, the surveillance and intelligence has really enormously improved, if you will. Uh, I, I'm not using the word police state here, but there's a lot of emphasis on social cohesion and people reporting to the security forces when they 
see things that may be out of order. So if we compare this to Burkina Faso, where I think Ansar al-Islam was able to spread out of purview of the authorities, the coastal states are much more aware of this kind of danger. In the case of Cote d'Ivoire, it seems to be working quite well. And what about uh, Ghana? The Ghana, I think, is a difficult case in the sense that the uh, Muslim North, if you will, is feels quite removed and there's a lot of land disputes in Ghana's north. There's artisanal gold mining on a very large scale. So it has some of the ingredients that make us quite concerned. I guess on the one hand, you have this sort of vulnerability that you talked about. And Ghana also, from what I understand, has a lot of Burkinabe refugees. But it is traditionally seen as sort of quite a strong, capable state compared with some of its neighbours reasonably successful democracy, until recently a a strong economy, although it has faced these sort of acute economic challenges recently. Yes. Also, Bikinabe refugees are also in northern Cote d'Ivoire, so there's also concern for the government, basically right now, because a lot of the refugees are actually pearl uh, herders who sometimes come with their cattle, and there may not be enough land to find a good space for them. The same is happening in Ghana. I think Ghana may be a stable democracy, but it hasn't had the wake-up call that Ivory Coast has had in 2016, that we just mentioned. And it hasn't had that history of very severe crisis that Cote d'Ivoire went through, which has some elements, you know, in, in Ivorians have some elements of they don't want another crisis again. Um, so Ghana hasn't been through crisis. It is going through a financial crisis, but of course that's different. It's been quite peaceful uh, recently. But even as far back as 2019, there were already reports of Ghanaians being recruited to train in Mali, you know, even fight in Mali or fight in Burkina Faso. And those are very, fairly large numbers, you know, like 200 to 300. So I think it's a concern for the authorities and they have tried to respond with that to some extent. They've uh, reworked the uh, administrations of the north, so they cut up several regions to make them smaller, so for better state presence and easier to govern. There's counterterrorism units deployed in the north, uh, special forces, that kind of thing. Um, at the same time, Ghana hasn't had a major attack. It hasn't had any incidents. Of course, I can't look into a crystal ball, but I think the fact that it's a stable democracy doesn't avert any attacks or proselytizing by jihadists in the north. You know, the authorities have to be aware, and they have to be aware. You know, the state has to be present in the north, and that's not really the case in northern Ghana. So I want to talk in a moment about prescriptions, what governments in the regions, what others can do. But maybe just before that, Ibrahim, Pauline, I mean, how much is it possible to assess jihadists' own motives in sort of why they're moving south? I know some people see it very much as part of what's happening in Burkina, even a way of sort of encircling the Burkina Kinabi capital, Ouagadougou, or maybe more about supply lines. Others argue that it's more about capturing more territory, expanding, winning influence in other areas. And I guess, again, I don't know how much it's possible to say, but to what extent should we see it as part of a strategy that's directed by Janine's leadership or something that is more driven by the local Katibas that we talked about that are spearheading the operations? I think it's hard to, to answer clearly that question. Even among the jihadists, they might have um, different views on that. Some of the information that we heard is that the leadership of Janine doesn't want uh, the jihadists to commit attacks in, in northern Benin um, uh, because uh, they consider 
this area as being a strategic area for them where they can rest, where they can withdraw to in case of troubles in other places and uh, a, a very important route um, th that they can use to smuggle um, goods. But at the same time, you have locals who have enrolled and who may think um, that this is the time for strengthening Islam in the area and, and bringing changes in line of their own interpretation of the Sharia in, in those societies. So this is not specific to northern Benin or to, or to the northern part of the countries of Gulf of Guinea. We saw a similar you know, debates and discussions happening when the jihadists were expanding toward the Sahel from Algeria. Clearly, the top leadership of Al-Qaeda was not in favor of that expansion, but the locals were the ones who were pushing for establishing bases and uh, engaging the local government um, in the fight to, to try to establish Sharia, saying that, I mean, we need Sharia here too. Um, but beyond that, there are a lot of benefits that they get from this expansion. First of all, the park, as we mentioned in the report, has become a headquarter for them, you know, today. They have established several camps inside it. They organize their activities around the region. They have courts established there. They have prisons where they bring people. They also use it as a very important um, source of revenue. For example, jihadists, they use the park's dense network of roads and, and rivers to smuggle good fuel, weapons. They also use the space uh, to stock some of the livestock um, and uh, the, the, the cattle uh, that they collect as zakat or, or from raids in the surrounding areas and from the park. Uh, they organize the selling of those cattle in, in the rural markets. Uh, they collect tax from uh, gold mines. There are a lot of gold mines that surround the park. They also use their presence in the park um, to promote some of the changes uh, that, that we saw, even within society. Uh, we know that this area is uh, inhabited by uh, quite a bit of Christian communities, and um, uh, the jihadists have been preaching against some of the, the, the Christian practices or the animist practices. Um, there are also a lot of animist societies um, in, in the areas around the park, and promoting changes in line with, with, with the interpretation of the Sharia rule. Um, <clears throat> Not only this has become a headquarter for them, but it's also a launch pad um, to reach to other places, as we mentioned. And we see them trying to push uh, the limits of their presence to the south, um, toward uh, other forests inside Benin. They also push their presence to Togo, toward the capital city of Niger, uh, etc. Uh, so it is for them a very, I think, interesting place uh, to be, strategic one, but also uh, th that can bring a lot of economic benefits. Yeah, if I can add to that, I think these borders in West Africa have been porous for a very long time. Even the border between Cote d'Ivoire and Burkina Faso has dozens, if not hundreds, of passageway or tracks where people cross the border because their family is on the other side or because they, you know, catch a fish on one side of the border, which it happens to be a river, and they cross to sell it on the other side. And all these borders have been traditionally trafficking hubs, right? So a lot of illegal activity has always been going on. And I think jihadists to an extent benefit from that. They seize on illicit economic activities, just as Ibrahim mentioned. There also happens to be a lot of artisanal gold mining all along those borders. Um, on Benin side, um, Ibrahim has just explained, but there's artisanal gold mining in Ghana, in Northern Cote d'Ivoire. Is there some big expansion plan to go all the way to, you know, the capital cities on the coast and overrun all these countries. I doubt this would be possible. I'm sure they want to collect 
taxes. They need to control people in order to collect taxes. Again, Ibrahim might be in a better position to comment on this, but you know, I don't think there's such a big grand plan to take all this territory, but there may be a big grand plan to benefit from all this territory, which they can control. There's also the fact that Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire are seen as fairly um, successful economies that benefit a lot from Western corporations and attacks in this country or attempts to destabilize them will also have some propaganda value. So just to say, I think jihadists may want several things at the same time. Pauline, let me ask about the Accra initiative. So, I mean, this is this agreement signed by the four Gulf of Guinea countries plus Prosperkina, and its sort of main feature, from what I understand, tell me if this is wrong, is that in principle it allows cross-border operations, that the security forces of one country can chase militants across the borders. But do you want to just say a little bit about sort of what the thinking behind that was and what it's achieved? Yes, the Accra Initiative was launched in September 2017. Uh, it has its headquarters in Ghana. Two countries have observer status, so that will be Mali and Niger. And so you have seven countries working together. Uh, it's a homegrown African initiative. Um, the Accra Initiative did not take any Western funding um, when it was launched and didn't ask for it either. Its mission was to prevent uh, violent extremism, of course, but also to combat transnational organized crime, especially in border areas. And there have been a few successful joint military operations, some of them between four countries at once, uh, already way back in 2018. And they have shut down some jihadist cells, according to the official statements at least. They've tightened border security. And this initiative is still alive, but obviously it's become a little bit more complicated now with changing um, governments in Burkina Faso as well as Mali, so that cooperation with those countries might not be as good as it was before. And obviously joint military operations with Burkina Faso, which is really struggling with its own insurgencies right now, um, is quite complicated. But I think the willingness is still there and the countries still talk to each other. And broadly speaking, I mean, what's happened in other parts of Africa is that governments, often with Western support, sometimes now with Russian support, as, as you said, Pauline, that they emphasize a sort of military approach. And obviously, you know, military action needs to be part of the response, but they neglect efforts to address the conflicts that jihadists piggyback on to build better relations with the communities in which they operate efforts to think through how pastoralist corridors fit alongside farmlands. Now, these other policies that need to sit alongside the military side. Is there a danger that the coastal countries repeat those sorts of mistakes? I think the danger is there, but we shouldn't really underestimate uh, the awareness that these countries have of what could happen to them. They see what's happened in Mali and Burkina Faso. And if you take the example of Benin, it has a very small army and had no aviation capacity whatsoever until fairly recently. So you could say, okay, you shouldn't emphasize the military response, but in the case of Benin, it's quite clear that Benin needs to articulate some sort of military response and work on its army in order to be able to keep the jihadists from coming across the border. Togo, for example, is doing the same thing. Togo has bought Russian helicopters. It's talking with any country that might be able to give help. Um, oh, and just going back to Benin, of course, Benin is talking with, has been talking with Rwanda to get some forces deployed in the north, primarily for training of local forces. 
And the Rwandans, I mean, just so listeners understand, the Rwandans have been quite effectively fighting militants in Mozambique. They've also weighed in in the Central African Republic to sort of fight some of the, not jihadist, but other armed groups there. Exactly. So, you know, Rwanda, um, Russian helicopters, um, US is offering all kinds of training to some of these countries. I think a military response is to, uh, to some extent necessary. Um, Togo is also trying socio-economic projects in the north already, which it started a couple of years ago. And the ideas often behind these projects where Cote d'Ivoire is doing that as well, they're quite extensive. These are youth training programs, these are microcredit programs, community programs, all kinds of programs that kind of give some revenue to people who are either unemployed or have very small income, say, for example, women who sell onions on the markets, they have easier access to microcredit so they can expand their business a little bit. And often the idea behind this is that you're not only establishing state presence and show that you care about the people in the north, but it also helps with intelligence gathering because you have access to people's phone numbers, bank accounts, that kind of thing. And it makes it easier for people to find the authorities if they want to report something. So it's not just a military response, although we do see a very strong emphasis now on uh, acquiring arms and helicopters and training troops. Maybe Ghana could work more on a, a economic program for the North. Agricos is already doing that. But it's quite complicated. And these socio-economic programs cost a lot of money. And so donors have to help these countries in rolling out those programs. But the awareness is there that this is necessary. And Pauline, I mean, the, the presence of Wagner and the notion of sort of Russian support for military operations? I saw a news uh, report uh, recently which claimed that Russian trainers or Russian instructors are helping in Togo. So, of course, if Russia sells helicopters, it might send some instructors. These are not Wagner troops, so it's different. You know, Wagner is a private combat services company that's now only deployed in Mali and not yet in Burkina Faso. Um, I think a danger, you know, Wagner comes at the invitation of countries. So if a government decides that it needs military help, it could invite in Wagner. I think coastal countries are aware that if they invite in Wagner, this will be complicating their relations with other donors who probably have more money and more power. Pauline, you've sort of answered this already, but it seems that sort of Western countries are stuck a little bit in this. You know, on the one hand, the Gulf of Guinea countries do need military support. They need it, some of them at least, Benin, Togo, as you talked about, need support. Their security forces are not strong. On the other hand, you know, as we've talked about, an approach that's overly militarized has backfired in other places. And yet the coastal countries can also go to others if the West isn't going to be forthcoming with the sort of military aid that these countries want. So how do Western governments sort of strike that balance? Yeah. So in the example of Togo, where I mentioned uh, so Russian helicopters, uh, Turkish drones, um, it's, you know, and, and some of this is a result of talks with uh, France that didn't go well, and France was supposed to deliver military equipment, which didn't come in time. And so Togo turned to other suppliers. And you see this in the case of Cote d'Ivoire as well, which has many, many partners and not just Western partners. It's heavily supported by France. It has the support of the US, but it's also supported by India. China has been talking with several partners in the region to see what it can supply. Israel has been active. 
So there's a whole range or a variety of partners who might be willing to help these uh, fairly solid economies uh, in West Africa. Uh, also because there's not much they can offer anymore to Mali and Burkina Faso. I think that also plays a role. How Western countries can strike a balance? I think the fears that the militants will spread like all the way to the coast, I think they're a little bit overblown. However, I think that the concerns that there may be supply routes to be set up in these coastal countries or that they might try to go down and you know, perpetrate attacks, those concerns are entirely justified. But we're looking at relatively capable governments who have access to a variety of partners that they can use and that they know how to use. So I think we should really take that into account. Yeah, I think Pauline said it rightly. I think um, uh, some of these threats are overblown, but at, at the same time, we should downstress them. Uh, they're, they're real. Um, two years ago, there were a lot of discussions about the risk of spillover toward the countries of Gulf of Guinea at that time. There wasn't attacks, in, uh, particularly on Benin or in Togo, but now we have attacks in, in Benin and Togo. A lot of people think that the Benin government did not react at the time when it should, when people were ringing the bell that this could happen. So it was only 2022 when, when we saw really um, attacks starting to come strongly in, in, into northern Benin. And uh, by now... One year and a half, I mean, we have, we have really suffered a lot. There are places um, that are really under a lot of stress uh, in northern Benin. So uh, I, I do think that these threats and um, the presence of the jihadists is real. It should be taken a lot more serious. What can we do about it? I do think that uh, there is a lot of learning to be done from the failure of stabilization strategies in, in the Sahel, including uh, things like the J5 Sahel. And just so people understand, the G5 Sahel is another regional coalition, a military coalition of the Sahel countries that's sort of operating, supposed to be operating in the sort of border areas, but has largely petered out, right? Yes. G5 Sahel it is the group of five Sahelian countries who were faced with the jihadist violence and who's tried to join force uh, in order to fight these groups. Uh, but uh, they have had a lot of issues to operationalize the joint force. But uh, after they got to operationalize it, um, uh, to, be, to it to be effective, um, uh, they never got to realize that. There is a good argument to make that this threat is a cross-border threat. So countries have to get together in order to fight it, to authorize uh, cross-border uh, operations, to share intelligence, etc. But at the same time, what has been very difficult to do is to conduct joint operations that make real difference on the ground. What works better is for each country to conduct operations uh, and to coordinate with the other country from the other side. And some of those coordinations can be very light coordination, just um, you know, sending uh, text messages between two commanders operating on each side of, of the border to share information, coordinate their actions. But that produced more results than cumbersome joint um, oper- operations where uh, you know countries bring all their troops together and then patrolling large uh, areas. Uh, th- this usually doesn't work. I th- also think that, um, as you rightly mentioned, Richard, uh, there might be effort to go beyond the military response, and uh, we saw that uh, in, in Benin. They are making real efforts to address uh, some of the grievances that Pauline was mentioning about the northern part of, of those countries being marginalized to promote development at the local level, to uh, uh, emphasize security more than defense, 
you know, to try to manage grievances among different segments of the population, including nomadic population and, uh, and herders and uh, farmers. There is also a very ambitious effort by the Benin government to try to sedentarize nomadic herders, which if it works, I think it can provide a very good example of something, a policy that can work um, toward addressing the problem of uh, pastoralism in, in the area. So I think those are efforts that need to be supported. Richard, you're asking what the Western countries can do. I think um, some of those actions um, can be um, very much supported and can produce good results. Ibrahim, Pauline, thanks very much for coming on again. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on the Sahel and on the Gulf of Guinea on our website, crisisgroup.org. Look out for that big report that Ibrahim talks about on Park W. You can also follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thanks to our producers, Kibben Murphy, Heiko Schaub, and thanks, of course, as ever, to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch, podcast at crisisgroup.org, or write to me directly, outward at crisisgroup.org, if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns. If you like the show, please do leave us a positive rating or review, and I very much hope that you'll join us again next week.